this was happening. Then here, that means a test is coming. Ladies, I have a plan. Hondro, the transform a child into a mouse. Let you get away with your filthy evil plot. Who's gonna stop me? Doesn't matter who you are or what you look like, so long as somebody loves you. You wouldn't happen to be carrying around a mouse on your person, now would you? A mouse? Mm -hmm. Why on earth would I be carrying around a mouse? Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rockrow. And today we have quite the fun pod planned. We're going to be doing a movie trade with Robert Zemeckis movies. So just a reminder from last time, I gave Nick What Lies Beneath and he gave me Death Becomes Her. We'll be talking about those and we will also be spending some time talking about Zemeckis' latest release, the remake of The Witches. <laughs> this is turning into quite a little Zemeckis retrospective, which I never really expected to do on this, mm-hmm. but it's going to be fun. It's going to be wacky. And we'll definitely talk about Nicholas Rogue's original Witches, too, in comparison. I think this is going to be about as zany as a Zemeckis movie. We'll see if it's zany on the good end, like Death Becomes Her, or zany on the bad end, like The Witches. Just hang in there with us. I guess to get started, let's talk a little bit about who Robert Zemeckis is, just maybe some highlights. Yeah, so he was like Steven Spielberg's prodigy. So after Amblin in the 80s with everything Spielberg had done, Zemeckis kind of carried over his legacy and made these special effects focused quirky films. So we had Back to the Future, Contact, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? very early in his career, and then that transitioned into Forrest Gump, which is probably his most well-known and most successful film. We get into like the wackier Christmas Carol, Beowulf, Polar Express of his more recent endeavors with visual effects and CG. All over the board, though, with high highs and low lows. So Zemeckis definitely isn't one of my favorite directors, but I think he's an interesting director to talk about because of his place in the culture, right, in this class right after Spielberg. But also, I think of his films almost in three tiers. You have the really early special effects heavy films, like the ones that you mentioned, and then you have this like mid-tier of dramas, What Lies Beneath, where he's trying to, which we'll talk about, like trying to emulate Hitchcock. And then he has this third tier where you put things like the witches and where he gets into really bizarro animation and I don't really know what to make of him to be honest (laughs) (laughs) he's been featured at the Oscars a few times it Mm -hmm. was interesting looking back because three of the four films that have won Oscars have won for visual effects and Back to the Future is the only one that hadn't but it had won sound effects editing so still in that realm and I think too The special effects, that is his legacy. 
that and Forrest Gump, which he won Best Director for at the Oscars, that won Best Picture. We will be talking about that eventually when we do our 1994 episode. And I pulled out this quote that I read from him that I thought was really interesting at the beginning of his career. He said, I would like to be able to do everything. Just now, though, I'm too restless to do anything that's not really zany. Well, we get that all over the place. We really do. (laughs) As you go through them, you start to see these themes and trademarks that he has, and it really does focus on the misfortunes of the central character, which is huge in flight and the walk and even back to the future and the ones we'll talk about today. So it's interesting that he picks these characters and what he does with them, going from the Grand High Witch and the Witches and then Tom Hanks and Castaway. It's such an eclectic group of people that he wants to focus on. So let's get into Nom or Bomb. We'll do these in order of which they were made, and obviously we're not including the ones that we'll be talking about later. Okay, so first up we have Back to the Future. It's a nom, classic. Nom for me too. I love this one. Who framed Roger Rabbit? You might be surprised to hear me say this, but nom. It's just so unique. It's a nom for me too. Okay, Forrest Gump. It's a nom for me. I have complicated feelings about it, as I've alluded to before, but I will, also, I will also give it a nom. Okay, I yeah. was expecting a bomb here. <laughs> I, have, I have some coming. <laughs> Contact. I've actually never seen Contact. Again, this is one I haven't seen for a long time. It's a nom for me. This is very iconic Jodie Foster alien film. Okay, wait a second. I have seen this. Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey. Don't I don't really remember it, but based on those two, I mean, I feel like I should say nom, but I will revisit it. Okay, Castaway. I think this is my favorite Zemeckis, so this is a nom for me. Nom for me too. Tom Hanks is incredible in this. And I think it's rewatchable, which might be odd to say because it is really sad, but I do really like it. It really is. The score is really good. I used to hate this as a kid, so my tastes have definitely matured, (laughs) thankfully. (laughs) Next up, the Polar Express. Bomb. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so scared of it. Yeah, bomb for me. So in searching for fun facts about him, I saw that he is one of only nine directors with two A-plus cinema score ratings, which are like these polls that (laughs) they do after people actually see the movie in the theater. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those A-plus ratings, which I really don't understand. I saw that too. When I clicked on the article, I thought, okay, for sure, Forrest Gump is one of them. That's like the no-brainer. And then I thought, okay, what would be the second? And then when I saw that it was the Polar (laughs) Express, I was like, oh, wait, these ratings don't mean a thing. (laughs) They don't matter. (laughs) Or as like a select three kids that they interviewed. Like, who knows? Okay, next up we have the literary classic, Beowulf. I might have seen this, but I really don't think I had. So (laughs) so I I won't comment. Okay. Or we read Beowulf senior year. And I remember Mm -hmm. specifically our teacher telling us not to watch (laughs) Beowulf. And Angelina Jolie plays Grendel's mother. And I watched it, of course, anyway, because I was told not to. And definite bomb. Continuing with this type of animation, A Christmas Carol. Bomb. My favorite Christmas Carol is obviously The Muppets Christmas Carol. This one, I just remember the ghost of Christmas past looked like this little floating egg, like candle thing. And I thought it was so bizarre. I think Polar Express must have scared me because I didn't see either of these. And I also think Jim Carrey as this 
crazy CG version. Mm-hmm. No, I, I couldn't do it. Okay, next up we have Flight. So I, going through these, I haven't seen like the second half of his career. I think what turns me off from seeing films sometimes are if they are really only like an actor's showcase uh-huh. piece. And this was definitely that for Denzel. He got nominated for this, right? He did, yeah. It was the film's lone nomination, I believe. And I had heard mixed reviews. Oh, it got screenplay too. Never mind. Interesting. Anyway, continue. No, I think that's it. So I, I'm i still like mixed on putting this on my watch list, but I could get to it. It was on the longer side too. I think just multiple things. I was like, meh. I'll give it a nom just for Denzel. It's definitely not memorable. Like it was one of those that I just saw because he was nominated and I was working my way through the list. So next up is The Walk. A Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie about heights. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see it. I didn't see this either, but I saw the original documentary, Man on Wire, which Uh did really well. And it's fascinating, but I don't think fictionalizing the story was going to do anything for me. So I skipped this one too. Maybe I'll watch the documentary though, because I do like those adrenaline-packed types of documentaries. Like I love Free Solo. Next, we have Allied. So this is the only one I've seen from his second half, and I'll probably give this a bomb. I think it was an okay movie, but overall, skippable. Very skippable. I'm going to give it a numb only because of Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard. And Marion, yeah. I mean, they're great. As a piece where you're guessing until the very end, you know, is she on his side or not? It was just kind of lacking in depth. And you definitely know the ending, I think. Like, it was pretty easy, I think, to predict. I think I knew going in. It was like, it has to be. And then last up is Welcome to Marwin. Do you think that I saw Welcome to Marwin? No, but if you have, I can only imagine it's not a good thing. (laughs) I, I skipped this one. It was, I will say, the craziest movie trailer I've ever seen, maybe. Yeah. The Five Women and Steve Carell. This was another documentary that was made into like a fictional film adaptation marwenkel another crazy story about some zany guy who makes these films out of action figures so he also had back to the future two and three in there to me nothing is as good as the original i agree i think the first one is definitely the best but two and three are fun well i hadn't seen some of his really really early ones romancing the stone and then used cars which are talked about pretty mm-hmm. heavily. And I know Romancing the Stone, especially as a classic. He has two pictures in the works. One oh. is the live-action Pinocchio, not the Guillermo del Toro oh. version. So he's doing the Disney live-action remake. Yeah, right. It never really bodes well for a filmmaker when Guillermo del Toro is attached in some way, but not taking the lead or is kind of removed from the project. Yep. And then he also has a film coming out called The King. And Dwayne Johnson will be playing the titular role of King Kamehameha. Different than the Timothy Chalamet, the king that (laughs) we got on Netflix. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) All right. Do we want to talk about Death Becomes Her? Let's start. Yeah. Okay. You go into the details first since you were the one who picked this for me. So I think this is also one of Zemeckis's better films. It's incredibly campy. It's about these two women, Madeline and Helen, who are played by Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. And 
they end up fighting over this guy, Ernest, who is played by Bruce Willis. And then in comes Isabel Rossellini with this magic potion that keeps them alive forever and makes them look young. And what ensues is just total camp and lots of fun. I loved this. I thought it was so funny. I really couldn't believe it had taken me this long to see it since I really I love Meryl so much. I think it was kind of the birth of Meryl in these totally outlandish roles like Florence Foster Jenkins and doing Mamma Mia and upcoming Golden Globe winning performance in The Prom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, yeah, we have to go there. (laughs) It's so much fun. I think she's an actress who has a lot of stillness, especially if you're thinking about like Kramer versus Kramer or Sophie's Choice, Bridges of Madison County, any of those. And in this movie, she's so funny and wild and really, I think, embraces the camp in a way that I had a ton of fun with. Mm-hmm. I think Goldie Hawn is so great in it, too. Honestly, my only complaint about the movie, I wish there was more Goldie Hawn. Meryl's definitely the lead, even though I think all three of them get a lot of screen time and have really prominent presences in the movie. They all look incredible, but I will say Meryl just looks amazing. Yeah. And she looks so young. Even before they transport her back 10 years, this film won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. The visual effects are so much fun. Just the body horror and the camp and just how the visual effects are used. Like when Goldie Hawn's character gets shot in the stomach and there's just this like giant gaping hole. And then she sits on the couch and this knife or whatever goes right through her. I think Mm -hmm. that is so good. And like when Meryl's neck is totally twisted around. Yeah. I can see my ass. Like, oh, so good. It's so funny. There are just a slew of lines from this movie, too, that are incredible. Uh, so I wrote down some of my favorite. Do you know what they do to soft, bald, overweight Republicans in prison, Ernest? <laughs> <laughs> so good. And I love when they're in the back of the car, too. And she just has this perfect line reading where she just looks at him. She's like, could you just not breathe? <laughs> yeah. I love that. I think they get her to say some things that she will never, ever say again or would have said otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Her whole like flaccid (laughs) speech on the stairs. Just what? At the time, she said she would never do another like visual effects heavy movie ever again. She wanted to Mm -hmm. go back to her more traditional dramas. But now, I mean, Mary Poppins returns like she's she's going back to it. You know, when you're Meryl Streep, just do what you want. You can do whatever you want, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think what's also fun is their two names, Madeline and Helen, they literally made them up just so they could shorten them. And when they greet each other, they go, mad, hell. (laughs) And then another quote that I really love that Goldie Hawn says, she says, divorce in California, that's exactly what she wants you to do. You have no talent for poverty. (laughs) You just laugh the whole time. I think the scene in the very end where they're even laughing in the church. This is something I could rewatch yeah, a lot. Yeah, it's very rewatchable. It's on HBO Max. That's how I watched it. It really just flew by. It really is definitely of a moment. This decor is so heinous and just the costumes. And then getting that scene of Goldie Hawn with like food dripping out of her mouth. She's like severely overweight and sitting in her chair watching this movie (laughs) of (laughs) Matt getting strangled in a film that she was in. It's 
just so gratuitous on so many levels. When she's in the fat suit at the beginning, I could not stop laughing. <laughs> I was like, what is this movie? And then I just leaned into it. Bruce Willis is also really fun in it. So his role was actually originally going to go to Kevin Klein, who I also think would have been a good fit for the part. I think this is an example, too, of we're about to talk about the witches, but when you look at something like Death Becomes Her, that has shades of rogues the witches to it, right? It's just, it's kind of gross. It's funny. It's really dark and cynical. And the way that it talks about women is really interesting. I think a lot of the visual effects hold up. I think really the worst part is when Meryl's head is twisted around. That's like the most noticeable thing. But honestly, Uh a lot of it holds up. I think so too. And I really like when they're cracking and breaking apart. Yeah. <laughs> like the, when the paint skin's on falling them. off. Yeah. Ugh. I love it. Meryl's like trying to glue her <laughs> skin back. <laughs> so let's move on to the witches. So let's talk about the 1990 version first. Directed by Nicholas Rogue. Produced also by Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. Starring the icon Angelica Houston. What was your relationship to this one? Did you watch it as a kid? Was it one that you watched a lot? Did it horrify you? I had seen it once a long time ago. I vaguely remembered the ballroom scene and I knew it was a little scary, but I rewatched it again for this. And really the visual effects, the prosthetic work is incredible. No, I agree. This was, I would say like in our top five most rented VHS tapes at Blockbuster (laughs) when we were younger. We loved the witches in my house, and there's a scene, so if you were one of the kids that was, like, scarred by this movie listening, you'll remember what part I'm about to talk about, where the grandmother, when she tells him the story about the girl that gets trapped in the painting, Mm -hmm. oh my god, that scared me so badly as a kid, and (laughs) thinking about this girl trapped in a painting, and she ages in the painting and then ultimately disappears when she dies, Mm -hmm. And just little things like that, I think. So I've told listeners before, I love Nicholas Rogue. I think he's just a complete visionary. Was a cinematographer before he was a director, which I think you can see completely in his films. Very avant-garde editing. Influenced people like Steven Soderbergh, Christopher Nolan, Danny Boyle. Huge icon in British filmmaking. But in making a children's film, what I think he gets so right is that he films it like a horror film for adults. He uses Dutch angles and extreme close-ups. And I think that the very British and European tone to it, both story-wise but also visually, really makes it that much more terrifying. And I think that the partnership between Rogue and Henson doing the prosthetics is just so cool. And Angelica Houston, of course, as the Grand High Witch is just perfect. When she pushes the pram off the... (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing because it's probably pretty scary and like horrifying. Uh I laugh so hard every time. She's just like, goodbye. (laughs) Push this baby off. That's a direct ode to Battleship Potemkin, which is just an interesting reference he puts in there of the stroller falling down the the hillside, but the stairs in um, Battleship Potemkin. It's interesting that he was a cinematographer first because, yeah, I, I wrote down everything that you mentioned I think the handheld camera work is great here. And the framing of the story just 
starting it out as this grandmother talking to her grandson about these scary witches and how they're real and Mm -hmm. you know what they can do is exactly how a children's book would have been written and framed in itself and being this road doll adaptation i think it was good i don't know if he was a fan of the film though he was not he actually picketed it which has shades of stanley kubrick and stephen king in the shining for sure they shot two endings so in the end of the movie after turning into a mouse this good witch comes back and turns luke back into a human Mm -hmm. and that's the ending obviously of course that tested better with audiences so they kept it but it's not faithful to the book so Mm -hmm. doll was very unhappy about that which we'll get to. I think it happens in like the last 30 seconds too. It's a very abrupt ending. The only other really funny thing to me was there's a line and I don't remember who says it now, but they go, maybe it was her diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) And thinking back, there's like candy and chocolate bars, which is how Bruno is transformed into a mouse. He's tricked by the witches. So Angelica Houston, who is just stunning, I think, in The Witches, is the Grand High Witch. She, I think, mm-hmm. is just perfect casting because she's one of those actresses who is unconventionally beautiful, which is perfect for a role like this, I think. So she told Entertainment Weekly that she just didn't really understand why a remake of The Witches was going to happen and she said frankly best of luck to them i hope it works i just can't imagine anyone trying to remake that particular film maybe it's a good idea for this generation and then she says i'm a huge fan of the original witches nicholas rogues movie and it was his particular brand of irony and wit that made it what it is so i hope they find a very fine director because that's what they had for the first (laughs) it's like very shady (laughs) very very but she it turns out she knew best she did we can get into comparing the two now but her accent is just incomparable Anne Hathaway did not do it justice at all hers was just way over the top and I think the shot where Angelica has her skin peeled forward just a little bit to show her skull and her wig starting to pull back Mm -hmm. and then it gets to like the full witch face is terrifying and they don't even do that in the new one Mm -hmm. she never takes her skin off and it's really more of this caricature of this scary witch with a really deep accent and cg work that like splits her smile into this venom joker (laughs) face yeah it's All of these witches, when they arrive at the hotel, have these like Joker-like smile line scars. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just so strange because that's the first thing I thought of was the Joker. And I was like, please, like, let's not go back to this again. (laughs) We don't need this. No, thank you. (laughs) They also made her very bird-like, which was strange. All of her movements, it was just so laughable. She has like one toe. It has like a claw on it very scary and then, yeah it's very bird like yeah and then she's wearing this underneath her dress this gold like we didn't need that <laughs> we didn't need that at all but they like, zoom in on her wearing this corset type of thing and pulling the potion out of it she pulls back her dress it's like why do we need this pg-13 ish shot of her midsection i it was like no janet jackson at the that. super bowl like that's what it reminded <laughs> me of it was just like pulling this thing away like what are you doing like why was a close-up needed to show us where the potion was coming from too <laughs> there are lots of issues when she throws the podium like, it was just so weird 
just like, it's why over are the top, you doing this? not real at all. And like, why are you damaging hotel property? Like, are you going <laughs> to obviously you have a chest full of money? So going back to the story setup, another thing that I found so jarring was the Chris Rock voiceover. <laughs> And such a childish screenplay, too. Yeah, because so the screenplay didn't have any of the dark comedy or horror elements that the original script had. It felt very childish and very for children. But at the same time, I can't imagine a child being entertained by this movie. And the Chris Rock voiceover was just, everybody hates Chris. That's what it reminded me of. It was just like, why are we here? Why are we doing this? Because at the beginning, too, you're like, oh, is this him as an adult thinking back on this time? And is that how they're Mm -hmm. putting in this storybook type of device? Yeah. Is that their spin on it? But then it's not because the first 30 minutes of the film, you don't really learn much about the witches. It's more of a time for him to grieve about the loss of his parents and to have fun with Octavia Spencer. Yeah, Chris never shows up. And who is he? (laughs) So he's the little boy when he becomes a mouse. So at the end of the movie, you find out that he's teaching the class. I didn't even put that much thought into it, bringing it back to the first scene. I do like trying to find the light in all the darkness, Octavia's performance. And I think that's where it ends, though, is with Octavia. She has a fun scene in the beginning where she comes out and dances and tries to brighten her grandson up. I agree. I always have a good time with Octavia Spencer, whether it's the witches or Ma or Hidden Figures. I think she's always good, but I think that, one, she deserves better than the witches remake, and two, she deserves better than a costume team who always puts her in house dresses. She really was like in the help clothing again. Also, I had, I was like, why are they choosing these colors? And I guess just as a complimentary color to the purple potion, but there's a scene in the beginning where they're in the kitchen. There's like yellow everywhere. It's like her dress, the wallpaper. She makes this huge batch of cornbread paired with some orange juice. What an odd combination. (laughs) And the napkins are yellow. The cornbread did look really good. It did look good. But then he takes a chunk from the middle. Like he didn't even use silverware. I I didn't understand anything that was happening. It's almost like they wanted it to be set in the U.S., in the South, so they could use Mm -hmm. the music they wanted to use. Like I was just like, why are we moving it here? Which, again, changes the original Road Doll story, which the original had done too in parts. So I don't know why either version couldn't stick to the original story story we can talk about Rebecca another time god don't want to spend too much time on that but when I rewatched the Hitchcock Rebecca there was this huge fight on set always between Mankiewicz and Hitchcock because Hitchcock did not want to stay true to the book at all he wanted to do his own thing Mm -hmm. and Mankiewicz was like no this is a bestseller we need to stick to the book so I think when you have directors like Zemeckis or Rogue they want to put their own stamp on it and we see this so often I think with authors who are so protective of their material and they meet these visionary directors who like Stanley Kubrick for The Shining want to change it up and then ultimately produce something that is more iconic than their original story and they can't handle it. That's my hypothesis. I appreciate that we're featuring this black family and more of this culture adding to the story which was originally placed in Norway and I think the father was 
from America or they lived in America. Mm-hmm. But I guess I am wondering more about like small things that they change that don't seem to have an effect on the story. Like in this one, the boy was in the car when it crashed and how his parents died. And in the original, he wasn't in the car. And I don't know how it happened in the book, but I think in this case, it added a little bit darker of an element. It was a cool shot where it shows him and then it flips 180 and he's upside down in the car Mm -hmm. when it's crashed. I mean, in this one too, they do, you really feel the loss a little bit more. In theory, it should, I think, make the relationship between the boy and his grandmother stronger. But I think that the way that this old script implemented her telling the stories of the witches and I bought the relationship more in the old one compared to the new one because of the screenplay, Mm -hmm. not because of the actors. I was so eager to see if the painting scene was going to be in this one because that was the scene that really scared Mm -hmm. me as a kid. And I do think that the scene with the girl turning into the bird, which is in the book, was an interesting change up. Nowhere near scary. I saw this three days ago and I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) part when Octavia is telling the grandson about how she knew about the Grand High Witch and witches because her friend when they were like carrying the buckets of water was a slow yes. walker and yes. like lagged behind okay. her okay. and then she oh, literally the chicken. turns the chicken. into a chicken yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. okay yeah so like another like bird like thing the chicken and the cat are terrible CGI though in this film <laughs> just like immediately took me out i loved the cat i did think the cat was a good addition because i'm a cat person but the cg was horrible for the cat and i was like if banks is a better cat in hocus pocus and that movie was made in the 90s and we're in 2020 and you have a cat that looks like this what are you doing one other thing that really made me just burst out laughing in this was when octavia goes that's some serious ratification and you know they they cast at her in this film just so she could say that line this ridiculous line the dialogue was just so crazy and just i back to anne hathaway she was just not the right choice to play the grand high witch i don't really have another answer for it i think it's just a combination of bad things that happened here but she seemed like she had a lot of fun I disagree a little bit because I think Anne Hathaway was really the only A-list actor who looked most like Angelica Houston. It's just, I think the character development I was not on board with. I think if she had a different accent and didn't go over the top camp with it, it might have been better. But I don't think they transformed the original Grand High Witch from Rogue's version into this version, I think they took this version way too far. And maybe that was for, you know, kids' enjoyment. But yeah, I wasn't on board with how that all went either. Was The Witches the worst movie that you've seen in 2020? So looking back to Letterboxd, this is the lowest rated film of 2020 so far. (laughs) (laughs) I gave Mulan a two and a half and I gave The Witches a two. So this is not great. The Old Guard is close though. That's a three. definitely a chaotic year of films yeah so my worst rated movie of the year is still the kissing booth 2 <laughs> did not see that do not watch it. it is over two hours it is not good oh my god um but this is second with one and a half the new rebecca is close 
I definitely recommend Nicholas Rogue's The Witches from 1990. It's on Netflix right now. I don't recommend the 2020 version of The Witches on HBO Max, but if you just want to see any bit of what we're talking about, if you're curious, just just throw it on just to experience it. It's something I would have put into the background and listened to and would have been fine forgetting. It's not quite a memorable film, though. Also, we forgot the Kristen Chenoweth mystery was solved. Oh my gosh. It was. Going in, I still had no idea. And (laughs) it's kind of a fun surprise. Yeah. We don't need to spoil it, but she is there. I'm surprised we didn't get like an original song from her in like a a closing credits kind of way. Well, we have to talk about the closing credits. Those were cracked. So in this version, they stay true to the book ending, which is that the boy stays a mouse. Mm-hmm. This version too, I don't remember if this happens in the book, but Bruno's parents don't even want him. So he just yeah, like what goes with them. That was really sad. <laughs> was so sad. My friend was most impressed by Bruno's mom, who does a good job at just freaking out about yeah. Bruno as a mouse and is probably the one thing that stayed true between the two versions. Mm-hmm. I did think that the Stanley Tucci casting was fun in the Rowan Atkinson role. Yeah. I mean, nothing to write home about. But anyway, the ending of this, you see postcards of, Oct- of Octavia with these mice. <laughs> In different locations around the world. I didn't stick around for the credits this time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So going into our next movie for the movie trade, I chose What Lies Beneath, which Nick had never seen before. Brief summary here. The wife of a university research scientist believes that her lakeside Vermont home is haunted by a ghost or that she is losing her mind. It stars Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. Before we get into what you thought about it, I will say that I had not watched this since I was probably 14 at a sleepover. So being my first viewing, this is kind of the 20th anniversary of the film, I guess. And I probably shouldn't have waited this long just because I don't think it holds up. And maybe I should have watched this at a sleepover too and been scared and enjoyed it because there are scary elements. And I think he hits on a few different types of horror here, which can be fun, but I think it's a little chaotic. It definitely is chaotic. I don't think it holds up as well as I remembered either, especially because when I was 14 or so watching it at a sleepover, it was so fun to watch with a group and it was something you felt like you shouldn't be watching. And it did feel really scary, especially because I think that was like around the time too when I had watched it where we had just watched The Ring. Everything with mirrors was scary to me. Everything with, you know, ghost girls was scary to me. And I just like didn't want to deal with it. And the hard part about watching it now, I think it felt so long. It feels like it's a million different movies and like you could definitely cut out like an hour from the middle. Yeah, it's like three movies wrapped into one. I mean, you start out with the story where Claire is spying on the neighbors of this abusive husband who she thinks has murdered his wife. But then that transitions into this like seance, which gets into weird spirits. And then in the end where it just totally twists into a different kind of horror where, you know, she's laying motionless in a bathtub, but conscious that, you know, she's about to drown. It's just so much. It's a lot in good ways and in bad ways. I think that I love spending time with Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford in Vermont. I think that's enjoyable. And it was even more enjoyable for me to 
see that now having lived in Vermont. So this was the first time I'd watched it like since I'd lived there. And this movie in Vermont is like famous among locals in Burlington because Harrison Ford would just go to restaurants and bars on Church Street. If we have any Vermont listeners, he apparently loved to frequent Rira's <laughs> on Church Street, which is hilarious considering it's just a chain pub type of thing. But the women in my office who I used to work with were obsessed with telling stories about seeing Harrison Ford. <laughs> There's a serious man drought in Burlington, but oh my god, <laughs> it would be exciting to see Harrison Ford anywhere. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> but especially there. <laughs> yeah, and in his peak years, really. The house, you can't go visit it or anything in Vermont mm-hmm. because it wasn't up to code, so they ended up tearing it down. Vermonters are sticklers for their rules, and oh it's god. not really an easy place to film movies. The interiors were all on sound stages, but I thought that was just wild that they yeah. Yeah, that's that. crazy because it is a beautiful house. So I love, of course, seeing New England, Michelle and Harrison Ford in this really beautiful house and these beautiful bathrooms and him being a professor at UVM. But you mentioned the beginning, which Zemeckis definitely tried to make his type of Hitchcock movie. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it's trying to feel like Rear Window, but it ends up just being this red herring. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not totally convinced that the husband didn't kill the wife and, you know, this other woman just came in and is pretending to be her. Kind of like this Woman in the Window, Amy Adams vibe, which, you know, is a movie that was delayed until next year. But the fact that he just totally took the film in a different direction and didn't answer this. Why did the husband bring the car up to the house on a very rainy night? And what was he carrying you know, body shaped, wrapped in a blanket. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That to me, that type of story, it was so interesting while it was happening. And then they just kind of give up on it. And it's part of the reason why the movie ended up being too long, I think, Mm -hmm. was because like, okay, if you just cut this all together and just get to the main part of the story, I think maybe it could have been better. But I do get what what he was trying to do of, you know, trying to sow doubt in our minds of, is this woman crazy? What's going on? And she definitely does do some things like from like stitched together (laughs) horror movies kind of so she finds this like list of missing persons in vermont and there's this whole thing that he does with initials mef where you think that maybe it's referring to this neighbor mary but then you find out that it's probably actually this missing girl madison elizabeth frank Mm -hmm. And when Claire, Michelle Pfeiffer, goes to visit her mom, she like says she was her friend in grad school. And it reminded me kind of of Silence of the Lambs where Clarice like goes up to yeah. Frederica Bimmel's room yeah. and ends up like finding the clue. And she ends up taking this lock of hair that she becomes so obsessed with because it's what she's going to use to have a seance. And you're like, okay, now there's a Ouija board. Now she has this missing girl's hair and you know that maybe this is the ghost that she's been seeing. And there are just so many horror elements that I think work better if you're just throwing a movie on. So do you know who the actress is who plays Madison? She looked really familiar. She reminded me of the woman from Parent Trap. She does kind of look like her, (laughs) actually. That's so funny. Yeah. Another M. Yeah. (laughs) 
Elaine Hendricks. The names are, before I get back to that story, the names in the movie are really interesting. Like Norman kind of makes you think of Norman there, Bates, yeah. like another Hitchcock thing. But yeah, so on the names, the woman who plays Madison, her name's Amber Valletta. She was like a big model in the 90s. And when I was talking to my dad on the phone the other day about this movie, he brought up Amber Valletta. And I something about hearing her name triggered this thought process for me where I was like, where have I heard that before? Like, I know... It's not Amber Valletta, but who am I thinking of? And I know that you don't watch Vanderpump Rules, but I know that our listeners do. And I have to bring up that a couple of seasons ago, this cast member who's just a little lost, Sheena, was dating this man named Rob, and his last name is Valletta. And it turns out that Rob is Amber Valletta's brother. So if you watch What Lies Beneath and you recognize this woman from the missing person flyers and as the ghost, that is Rob Valletta's sister. And I also thought it was funny because I remembered that Sheena in her craziness had already picked out a name for their future child. They've since broken up, of course, but the name was Madison Marie Parks Valletta. What? Which is just so strange. But she was going to name her Madison. If she'd seen what lies beneath, she would know not to do because that's the name of the dead girl who her future sister-in-law or whatever would be playing. (sighs) Wow. Anyway, thank you for letting me venture down that <laughs> that path, the cursed path of Sheena Marie. Yeah, I don't understand a single thing you just said. So You're better off for it. My brain has just become mush during quarantine. That's where we are. <laughs> Speaking of Madison, actually, some of Zemeckis's CG work here isn't great, but there is one scene where it is, and it's when really he makes an ode to the original witches when their eyes shine purple and the son Luke knows they're a witch because of it, which he doesn't do in his version, which is odd. But there's a moment where Michelle Pfeiffer's eyes, when she's like inhabiting the spirit of Madison, her eyes switch from blue to green. And there's a really cool moment where she leans into Norman and Claire's face switches to Madison's and it really freaks him out. And Mm -hmm. I think this is really well done actually, because it is really spooky. I thought so too. And this is also, you know, another Hitchcock theme that comes up a lot, which is women being replaced or men trying to replace women with doubles or lookalikes. We see it in Vertigo. We see it in Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And this is very much, I think, what he's trying to do here. And I think it really works because they look enough alike where it's really, really spooky when that does happen. You're like, oh, that's... That's not Michelle. Like, that's not what I am used to seeing here. (laughs) I think overall, Michelle Pfeiffer is like the perfect New England Valium-induced haunted housewife. She is. (laughs) (laughs) Those cheekbones. Entirely. And I think her and Harrison are a good duo for this New England set drama thriller. But it's more of like a fun group background watch for me. Like his newest witches adaptation as well. But overall a miss i think it's far better than the witches like i will say that but i think it is more fun if you're watching it with a group it's a little cheesy a little over the top but i think it's a fun watch for halloween don't go into it thinking that you're gonna be really scared of it it isn't really one of those types of horror movies i think it definitely feels more like a psychological thriller it's also available to rent which 
it's not on streaming, so maybe prioritize the others first. And when it comes to streaming, <laughs> you can watch it. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we are going to be playing another Oscar game. This is a suggestion coming from a listener, so we're really excited. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking four Oscar categories from the 2010s. We're going to be taking Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Actress. And we're going to be zeroing in on specific races from different years. And one of us will be taking the side of the Academy and kind of stumping for the winner, arguing for why they made the right choice. And the other person will be on the opposing side that can fight for whoever they think should have been the winner and arguing why the Academy made the wrong choice. So for the categories, if you feel like prepping along with us for best actor, we'll be using the 2012 year from which Daniel J. Lewis won for Lincoln best director from 2013, which Alfonso Cuaron won for gravity best picture from 2015, which spotlight won, and then best actress from 2018, which Olivia Coleman won. This is going to be so much fun, and we have a little surprise game, too, so (laughs) it's going to be a very chaotic episode with very passionate hot takes, I feel. This is really an inventive game. I'm really excited, and I've never been in a mock debate before. I really don't like rooting for things that I don't believe in, Uh so we'll see if I have a hard time or not. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I feel very similarly, so we'll see. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. As always, stay safe and wear your masks. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.